If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. But before we turn to the passage, uh, I want to think of a quick introduction. We are in a new series, as you see this uh, graphic here. Uh, It's called Sunday Rhythms. And for the next eight weeks, we're in this series entitled Sunday Rhythms. And what we want to do in this series is essentially this. We want to answer these questions. Why do we do what we do on Sundays? Why do we do what we do on Sundays every single week? Some of you have been coming to church for a year and it feels like a long time. Some of you have been coming 50 years. Why do we do what we do and what effect do the weekly rhythms have on our lives? Those are the questions that we want to answer because for most of us, if we're really and completely honest with ourselves, what we do for 75 minutes or so on Sunday afternoons is so divorced from the rest of the week, right? We gather together as a church, and we worship the God of the universe. We engage in this most sacred and glorious act. We commune with the God of the universe. But sadly, then we emerge back out into the world, little changed and little different, But these weekly rhythms are not just motions that we should be going through, although they can often be reduced to that. The Sunday weekly rhythms are in fact meant to mold us and to form us and to shape us. And so the thesis of this series is this. This is not the gospel truth, but this is just the thesis of where we're going in the series. The regular practice of Sunday rhythms form and shape us as God's people both corporately and individually. So the regular practice of our Sunday rhythms, the things that we engage in week after week, those things, they form us, they shape us corporately as a body and also individually. Meaning that what we do here in the 75 minutes is never just for the 75 minutes we're together. That what we spend, the time we spent together in the 75 minutes should actually color and shape the rest of our weeks. And so what we're doing in the series for eight weeks is considering eight different rhythms. Today we're beginning with the rhythm of gathering, but next week we'll consider the rhythm of singing, then the rhythm of praying, the rhythm of confessing, the rhythm of greeting, the rhythm of listening, receiving, and lastly, fellowshipping. Why do we do these things? And so today we're looking at the rhythm of gathering for weekly worship. So would you now stand for the reading of God's holy word as we hear from him in Psalm 95? Hear now the reading of God's holy word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his For he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me me to the proof, that though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swear in my wrath, 
they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Would you join me now in a moment of prayer as we ask God's blessing upon this hour? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that when we receive it, we are not just hearing words read from a book, but the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who spoke and people were raised from the dead, that you were the God speaking to us, and that's what we are hearing in your word. And so through it, form us and shape us, and teach us, Lord, what it means to be a people who engage in these Sunday rhythms. We ask for your blessing and your help at this time. I ask for your help to preach your word. My friends, on their behalf, I ask that you would be with them to hear and receive, and that in so doing, it's more than just instruction they're receiving, but life-giving news, for this is your truth and your word spoken and given to us. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was preparing for today's sermon and I was thinking about this topic of weekly worship and gathering together, I remember this illustration I came across in a book a few years ago, and, and here's how, it, uh, how the author put it. This is what he wrote. He said, On May 27, 2009, the world's largest worship venue opened in Arlington, Texas. With close to 30,000 parking spots, the ability to hold 110,000 people, a state-of-the-art sound system, and a gigantic center-hung high-definition television screen that measures 160 foot by 72 feet, it is the perfect location to gather, sing, shout, cry, clap, and feel the energy that occurs when that many souls come together with the same hope in mind. What church does this massive edifice belong to? It must be the Baptists or the Charismatics, right? No. The owner of this $1.3 billion monster in Arlington, Texas, with its retractable roof and almost limitless possibilities for usage, is none other than Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Now, many of you probably thought the author was describing a church when, in fact, he was actually describing a football stadium. And some of you Eagles fans are going, that doesn't sound like a church. It belongs to the Dallas Cowboys. It must be the synagogue of Satan that is mentioned in Revelation. Well, the author then goes on to make this point. He says, all year long, whether for a concert, motocross event, tractor pool, or football game, Men and women flood into the stadium, ready to support and cheer on their favorite team, band, or player. They've come for one reason and one reason alone. And that reason, of course, is to worship. To worship. Now, it's not Christian worship, but if you've ever been to one of these large kinds of events, you'll quickly realize there is a sense in which it is religious worship. I worshipped with some of you yesterday as we watched the Eagles play. You heard the songs of praise as people shouted and screamed the fight song. Now, why do all of us naturally worship? You know, none of us have to be taught how to worship. The reality is that we are created and we're made by God to worship him. But in our sin, of course, we begin worshiping the wrong things. That we adore created things. We extol and sing praises to created things rather than the creator. But God has certainly made us to worship him. Do you realize that as we gather every single week to worship, 
that in this moment, this is how you are truly and most fully living out your created design. That in this moment, when are you truly who you were meant to be? Throughout your whole week, some of you think, when I'm at my job and I'm barking out commands and people are listening. Some of you say, when I am coding and writing and and creating, that's when I'm most who I am. But no, you are most who you are when you are gathered as the people of God to worship him. But the problem is very few of us actually feel that way. How many of you walk into the sanctuary and from the moment you hear the call to worship and the moment that you open your mouth to sing that you think to yourself, this is why I'm created. Now I'm truly who I was meant to be. See, a lot of us don't come to church that way, do we? We enter the doors and we actually come in kind of already thinking about when it's going to end. That's how we come into the Lord's presence. And so we think of Sunday gathering more as an interruption into our lives, but it's for God, so of course I'll do it. But that is how we approach our Sundays. But do you realize you are never, ever, any more truly human and truly who you were meant to be than when we are gathered here to worship? This should be the most freeing, the most centering and life-giving activity that we ever engage in. It should cover, or it should color the rest of our weeks. And so, how does the rhythm of gathering for weekly worship form you? How does it shape you? And so, as we consider those questions, we're taking a look at Psalm 95, and I want to study this text and highlight this gospel truth. The rhythm of gathering in weekly worship centers our lives back to God. The rhythm of gathering in weekly worship centers our lives back to God. And so we're going to look at this gospel truth as we consider it in four ways. The first is this. Worship makes us look up. That's the very first point. Worship makes us look up. It makes us look up. It makes us behold God. And so consider the direction and object of our worship. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Listen to the words of the psalmist. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The invitation for God's people is to come and to look up and consider God. You see, the psalmist doesn't just invite us to worship God, but he actually tells us why. He gives us a reason. He explains why this is what you should be doing. So if you look at the next verse, verse 3, 4, because, why should you come and worship God? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The psalmist gives us a reason, the psalmist gives us a reason why we should worship God. So he says, the Lord is a great God. He's a great king above all gods. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What is the psalmist focusing on here? He's focusing on God's role as creator. God is the creator. Why should you worship God? Because he's the creator of all things, meaning that anything else that you worship is something that he created. That anything else you worship was created by God. So then to worship anything other than God, to refuse to look up at God and to give him all of the praises, to adore a created thing above the creator, to worship a created thing above the uncreated one. And he's saying, how ridiculous is that? Worship God, come, let us sing to the Lord. Why? For he created everything. 
And you and I, we need this reminder week after week because throughout the week, as soon as we leave this place and Monday comes along, there are so many things that compete for our affections. They compete for our allegiance and they compete for our adoration. There are so many things that seek our praise and our glory. And our hearts, if not guarded, will just gravitate toward those things. We'll just start worshiping other things. Why? Because that is our design. Do you know the word worship actually comes from the Latin word, or comes from a Latin word, which, which is basic meaning is worship. What is worship? It's really just acknowledging the true worth of something. And because as sinners we're constantly battling competing uh, things, things that, 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 that compete with God to receive our worship, because of that, we need to gather weekly in order to look up again, to look up at God, to remember that only God is worthy because only God is of highest worth. Some of you may remember this uh, old TV program. I actually looked it up. It's still on. It's called uh, Antique Roadshow. Some of you know this. It's an old British television show. It started airing in 1979. It's on its 40th season. It's like a really old show. But if you ever watch this show, basically the show records local people who bring their possessions in their homes. And they're usually things that are really old and have kind of been passed uh, down along to them. And they bring these things to these experts who evaluate them for their authenticity and then tell you how much it's worth. And so the experts say they get, I don't know, it may be a painting, it may be a chandelier, something, and they kind of tell you the, the historical context, the artistic context, and then they tell you how much it's worth. And this is always the most, you know, the, the, the most enjoyable part of the show. How much is this thing worth? And sometimes items that appear really fancy and really old turn out to be not originals. They're knockoffs. They're counterfeits. And so they're really worth nothing. And so this thing that somebody's been treasuring the whole time and they had, uh, you know, they guarded and they protected actually ends up being worth 25 cents. And then there's sometimes items that people bring in and they say, well, you know, this has just kind of been sitting in the closet or this has been sitting in the basement. And I thought, you know, it looked old. So I brought it in. It turns out it's a rare antique and it's worth thousands of ten thousands of dollars. And you see, for both groups of people, being told or reminded of an item's worth or an item's value, whether it's little or much, it changes. It completely changes your view toward that thing. So something that maybe was once hanging above a chimney, just kind of like any other, you know, home decoration, suddenly it's of great value and you begin protecting it in a temperature-controlled room with a humidifier and you just, you know, invest so much in it. And that thing that was once in a protective case and the thing that you had behind a safe, all of a sudden you realize it's worth nothing and so now you just kind of leave it out on the coffee table. Because once you're told the true worth or the true value of something, whether it's little or large, you must change your attitude toward it, how you treat it, the way that you look at it. Something like this happens every single Sunday as we gather together in worship. There's an evaluation that's happening. Because throughout the week, we forget that God alone is the true treasure, that he alone is truly worthy of all the worship and adoration, and we start worshiping other things, our looks, our performance, our jobs, our families, whatever it may be, we're worshiping other things. And so when we come, there's something like an antique roadshow happening here, that there's an evaluation 
There's an exposure that those things that you have been focusing so much and treasuring in your heart is actually a counterfeit. It's a knockoff. It's not worth anything. Stop giving your life to get that thing. It's not worth it. But then that one thing that you have been leaving in your backseat and leaving in your trunk, God whom you've quickly forgotten about, you were reminded again that he is the only one worthy of your worship. And we need to be told this week in and week out, this is the power of weekly gathering, that every time you come together, you're being reminded God alone is worthy of worship. So, one, worship makes us look up. Secondly, worship makes us move down. What does that mean? Worship makes us move down. Well, look with me at verse 6. It's very similar to verse 1. Oh, come let us, but there's something different. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. This time the psalmist calls us to come to worship, but to humble ourselves before God, to submit ourselves, to surrender ourselves before him. And so this physical posture of kneeling and of bowing before the Lord represents the posture of the worshiper's heart. It means that when we stand before God, when we come to worship him, there is no room for you to stand tall and to stand proud before him. That the only way to properly give him glory is from a posture of humility. And so this psalm is actually captured very beautifully by the words of John the Baptist who said about Jesus Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. That I must move down. Because he is the only one worthy of the worship. And so when we gather in worship, you know what's happening? You're not just sitting here going through the motions. What you are doing is you are ascribing the ultimate worth to God, and you are simultaneously moving away, moving out of the picture. Because there's no way that you can say, God is glorious, God is worthy of all the worship, and insist and hold on to your own worth. You must give it up. You must surrender it. So that you are out of the picture and only God stands to receive the praise. You know, just in a few weeks, the 2018 Winter Olympics are going to begin. And we all know what that's like after the race or the competition. What happens? The winners are announced and three people stand to receive their medals. Of course, the gold medalist stands on the highest step, and then the second highest step is the silver medalist, and then the bronze medalist in that descending order. You know what's happening in worship? You do not stand up with God who has the gold medal and you don't, you don't stand up behind him and try to get in the picture and sneak your head in there, get an arm in there. No, no, not at all. There's not room for two people on that top pedestal. But there's also not room for you to move on to the silver medalist spot. There's not even room for you to stand on the bronze medalist spot. No one belongs up there except for God and him alone. You must move out, move down, get out of the way. You see, worship requires that we humble ourselves before him. We bow, we kneel, we don't insist on sharing his glory with us. And you know why this is so hard? Because we live in an age of incredible narcissism and self-centeredness. We live in an age of front-facing cameras and selfie sticks. We live in an age where we think we belong at the center, and if not at the center, at least in the picture. Do you ever go through social media, some of you younger ones, and you're seeing pictures of, that your friends have posted, but you don't, you don't stop and look at all of them. You only stop and look at the ones that you're in. 
We are in this self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic age. And it's not just for the young people, it's for all of us. That's why we need a weekly rhythm of gathering together to move down, to remember that we don't belong in the spotlight. And the rhythm of gathering, we remember that it is right and good for us to get out of the way. Because it's only as we move down that worship is truly given. And I read a story this week about a man who visited an art gallery and he came across his painting that was highly celebrated and praised by every single art critic. It had received so much media attention. And there he was, staring at it, utterly confused. Because the painting to him didn't seem to be a masterpiece at all. It was nothing like the beauty that he was anticipating and the hype given to it. And as he was standing at it, confused, one of the tour guides recognized that, saw that look on his face, and approached him. And he kind of motioned him to get lower. The guide spoke softly to him. If you want to truly appreciate the beauty of this painting, you must assume a lower position. The artist intended it to be viewed that way. So the visitor bent down. But not enough. Lower, the guide responded, motioning with his flashlight. And so the man followed this instruction and bent over even lower. No, no, the persistent guide responded. Lower still. Finally, the man was bowed down, kneeling on the carpet, looking up at the canvas painting. And it was from that angle, looking up at it, from such a lowly posture that he finally could see and appreciate the beauty of this masterpiece. Friends, we will only ever worship God properly as we move down lower still. Throughout the week, we slowly try to creep in back into the center. We constantly are fighting and desiring to get some of that spotlight on us. But in weekly worship, as we gather and we remember, this is not about us. We are reminded we come before God kneeling and bowing. And it's from this posture that we see the true beauty and the true worth of God, and we give him worship. This is why worship is not about us, and we need to fight the consumeristic mentality. As you leave the church, rather than thinking, what did I get out of worship? Do you leave the worship going, was I able to give God my all? Yesterday, after shouting E-A-G-L-E-S, eagles, my voice hurt because I gave it my all. How many of you leave this place because your voice just, you need tea, not coffee, because your voice hurts because you have given God your fullest praise? Worship reminds us that we need to move down. Third, worship makes us remember the past. Why should we come worship and bow down as verse 6 says? Why should we do what verse 6 says? And the psalmist gives us the answer, verse 7. For, because he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. The psalmist calls us to worship because he's saying, you should remember two things. The first is positive, the second is negative, but they actually both refer to the same thing. They both refer to a single event in Israel's history. So the first reason is a positive reason. The psalmist says, you should come and worship God and kneel down for this reason. We are the people of his pasture. We are his people. He is our God. We are his people. And this language of belonging to God is a very common expression found in the book of Exodus. 
In fact, the very first time in the entire Bible that God ever calls Israel my people is in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 17, when Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And this is what God says. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So the psalmist says we should worship God. Why? Because we are the people who belong to him. We are his people. He has delivered us out of Egypt. He has freed us from slavery. So that's the first reason. It's the positive reason referring to the Exodus event. The second reason the psalmist urges us to worship is given negatively. It's because of the events at Meribah and Massa. Now you're going, well, what is Meribah and Massa? Well, there's an event in Exodus 17. After God leads them out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea. They're in the desert, and they begin complaining that there is no water. And they're complaining and complaining to God, and God gets angry. And so verse Exodus 17, there's a verse that says, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. You know what the psalmist is saying? The psalmist is saying, he's using this as a negative example, and he's saying, Remember that event? Remember how God rescued your forefathers? and Remember how they chose to quarrel instead of worship him? Don't do as they did. Don't be like your forefathers. Remember that God has saved you. And so by saying, remember, you are God's people, referring to the Exodus, don't be like the people at Meribah Massa, remember the Exodus, what is he saying? The reason, one way, the most important reason that you should come and you should worship God is as you remember the past and what he has done to save you. The psalmist is saying, remember that God is your savior. Don't forget that. Don't forget what he did in order to set you free. Remember and worship. What, what does worship do? Worship forces us to remember the mighty works of God in our lives. Why is this so important? Why must we do this week after week? Why do we gather weekly for worship? Because so many of us only worship when things are going great, when life is happy and comfortable, when we are not in seasons of struggle or suffering. But worship does not derive from the condition of our present circumstances. But worship comes out of remembering the goodness of God who has saved us at a great cost to himself. Whereas the psalmist's listeners had to remember Moses and their exodus from Egypt, when Christians gather, we remember Jesus Christ and our great salvation from sin. We have experienced what the Exodus only pointed to and signaled, salvation through Jesus Christ, a better Moses, a better Passover, a better crossing of the Red Sea, a better provision than manna and quail. We're promised a better rest in the land of Canaan. So worship makes us remember the past, not just dwell in the present. This is important because when the present gives you no reason to worship, The past gives you every reason to. When the present feels like there's a famine of reasons to bless God, the past supplies an abundance of reasons to bless him. This is the secret that we all need to learn, that worship focuses us 
to not look on the current horizon of things, but to look back in the past faithful acts of God who saved us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is why Job, in the midst of enduring great personal suffering, the loss of his family and his fortunes, is still yet able to praise and say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is how Habakkuk is standing against a Babylonian invasion and the promise of drought, and yet is still able to say, though the fig tree should not blossom, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is why two missionaries could be locked up in prison, placed in chains for sharing the gospel, and yet Luke records about them, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This is why the great apostle, while in imprisonment is awaiting his execution, can still write to the church in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is why John can be exiled on the island of Patmos, away from his family, away from his friends, and yet still sing in his letter, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Worship does not derive from the condition of your present circumstances, but it makes you remember the past and the goodness of God and his faithfulness towards you. And that fuels the worship in the present when there seems to be no reason for you to worship. In the rhythm of gathering, we are being reminded, yes, things may not be so good right now. They may be awful. But God has done for me the ultimate good. What is that ultimate good? He has saved us from our sins through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and died as a sacrifice for our sins. And this, all of this, offered freely to us, not because we deserve it, but precisely because we don't deserve it. You see, because we forget this gospel truth so often, because we get so consumed with the present, we need We absolutely need weekly worship to make us remember the past. And lastly, I'll close with this. Worship makes us gather together. Worship makes us gather together. See, if you take a step back from the psalm and you consider it in its whole, you must notice that the psalmist speaks to us in the plural. It's a really interesting detail, but if you notice, worship requires Gathering together because it's never merely an individual pursuit. It's always a communal and corporate practice. Pay attention to verses 1 and 2 and this repeated refrain. It's very simple. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. Then again in verse 6, let us worship. Let us kneel before the Lord. You cannot escape the assumed fact in the Bible that worship is done in the assembly and the gathering of God's people. So as much as you want to privatize your relationship with God, as much as you want a personal relationship with him, and you believe that spirituality is each person's individual business, is none of yours, it's mine, the Bible simply comes up to you and says, no, it's not. Where did you get that idea? Read the Psalms. Read the epistles. Read all of the corporate covenantal gathering of God's people, and you will see that God has called a people to worship him. 
So worship happens in the body of believers, and you have to realize, friends, this is a good thing. You know, some of you may think it's a curse or a punishment to have to see each other's faces every week and hear each other's voices and come together and worship. But friends, it is not. It is a tremendous blessing. It is a gift of God to call us to worship together. You know why? Because God is so big. He's so multifaceted in all of his glory, all of his excellencies, all of his worth, that there's no way that you by yourself could know and appreciate all of the diverse and divine excellencies of who he is. There's no way that you can appreciate the fullness of his beauty without a community. Because in order to more fully worship God, you need more eyes seeing him. In order to fully appreciate his word, you need more ears hearing him. In order to be encouraged by his faithfulness, you need to hear more stories of how he has transformed and changed people. Only as a community can we actually begin to piece together a slight picture of his infinite glory. You cannot do it on your own. Now, I heard this illustration from uh, Tim Keller, and I want to share it with you. He talks about uh, C.S. Lewis and how C.S. Lewis had uh, a trio of friends, and his friends were, um, it, was, it was him, he was referred to as Jack, and his friends Ronald and Charles. And when Charles suddenly died, uh, C.S. Lewis had this thought. He said, man, this is terrible. One of our closest friends is uh, passed away, but I guess one positive, one benefit is that now my relationship with Ronald will be stronger because I don't have to share him, right? I get all of Ronald. I don't have to share him with Charles. But what he realized, though, to his surprise, is that there were certain things in Ronald that only Charles brought out, that there were certain parts of his heart and his personality that only Charles knew how to draw out of him. So C.S. Lewis realized, ironically and surprisingly, that when Charles died, he didn't get more of Ronald. In fact, he got less of Ronald. He learned that no one individual can draw out the entire personality of a person that you can ever only truly know somebody in community. So Keller goes on to say, if that's true of a finite human being, how much more true would that be of God? That none of us can stand and truly know him all by ourselves. So the point is this, until you worship together in community, until you are gathered as a community of believers, you will only be able to know God as you have experienced him. And that will always be very limited. But as we gather, each one of us, to worship, pray, sing, study God's word, encourage one another, counsel one another, we help each other see more facets of his beauty and his worth. And that's why the psalmist doesn't just call you to come into worship, but he calls all of us, because it's an endeavor meant to do together. This is also why it is not ever okay for you to just say, well, I watched a YouTube video of a sermon at home and I worship God. This is why merely listening to a podcast or streaming a site on a website is never, it is never a substitute for true worship because true worship makes us gather together. And so... We do this when God is easily found. We come and we see him together. And when God seems hidden in life, we come and we seek him together. That you are not meant to just laugh at the joys of life by yourself, but to share the laughs together. Nor are you meant only to lament the hardship of life by yourself, but to lament together. And that we are called to not only smile at the good things of life by yourself, but together. In the same way we're called 
not just to suffer by ourselves, but suffer the hard things in life together. This is the beauty of weekly worship, of gathering, the rhythm of gathering together. Now, there's a whole fourth, fifth point that I had. Um, I'm not going to get to it. But if you want it, you can come to the office tomorrow at 12 o'clock, and I can tell you over lunch. But there's so much in this passage But the point is simply this. The rhythm of gathering for weekly worship has a profound way of just making us look up off of ourselves, of making us move down away from the spotlight. It has a way of making us focus not on the present, but the past and the goodness of God. And it does this by making us come together and gather in worship. And so my prayer and hope throughout this series is that the Sunday rhythms that form and shape us so that we become the people God wants us to be is never just going through the motions but it is the way that God molds us into worshipers, into his people. And so I'm really excited about beginning the, the next seven weeks. So to, next week we're talking about making melodies, the rhythm of singing. And so I encourage you to come with a little bit of honey and some tea and some throat medicine because we should come making melodies, singing loudly, rejoicing greatly to our God. So let's begin with Sunday rhythms as we gather next week for worship. Friends, pray with me. I want to invite you just to take a few moments to respond to the Lord, to respond to any prompting or conviction by the Holy Spirit. He has given to us this great psalm. And it is appropriate as we receive the word to then respond to the word. So uh, why don't we just take a few moments and respond in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have gathered us to worship. You have gathered us and you have done so faithfully week after week as we come together as your people to praise you. I pray, God, that we wouldn't just reduce the rhythms that we go through to be motions that we just kind of get caught up in and we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. But we would receive these as gifts in ways in which you are actually sanctifying us and forming us and shaping us. And so, Father, we want to commit ourselves to this first rhythm, the rhythm of gathering weekly. Of course, Lord, there are times through sickness or through some other obligations where we cannot be together. But in every moment we can, I pray, God, that we would have great zeal and desire to do so, not only in obedience to your word, but knowing, Lord, it's as we come together, as we meet together, Lord, that we get to adore you and worship you, and be satisfied in you, and see all of you in your perfected glory, God. And so, Lord, as we respond now in prayer and in song, continue to receive the worship as we look up, move down, remember the past, and we do it together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, receive now the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love 
and faithfulness and the goodness of God, the Father Almighty, the fellowship of His Holy Spirit who knits our hearts together, gathering us as His people to worship. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore.